The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, today we are finishing up our study on the Ten Commandments. And we have learned over the past nine weeks that these commandments were not given by God to restrict human flourishing, and human freedom. God was not being a cosmic killjoy and trying to limit our freedom when he gave these Ten Commandments. On the contrary, God is issuing these commandments to teach people how to live the best possible way, all right? Excuse the the pun. How to live their best life now, okay? This is what the commandments are all about. They are 10 words from God given to Moses that if obeyed, bring about maximum human flourishing, okay? Individuals flourish when they live like this. Marriages and families flourish when they live like this. Communities, states, nations flourish when they live like this. Now, for the most part, it's pretty obvious, right? It's hard to have a good neighborhood if people are murdering one another, right? One of the reasons our political system is so dysfunctional right now is it seems like there's so much lying going on. When people lie and they don't have integrity, it begins to destroy trust. And when you lose trust, you lose community. You lose true community. And so the Ten Commandments are really describing for us a way to live good right and beautiful lives. And obviously, the more people who are living this way, the better a society will be. Now, I'm going to ask you, isn't that what we all want? Don't you want to live a good, right, and beautiful life? Don't you want to be a part of a community or a group of people who could, could be described as good, true, and beautiful? I know that I do. But As we've seen over and over, we're going to see again today, having a good life and creating a beautiful community isn't as simple as it sounds. And the 10th commandment is going to shine a big spotlight on that reality. The 10th commandment says, 
you shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Now, what does it mean to covet? It means to desire something that is not yours, but belongs to another. It's not just to desire something. It's to desire something that is not yours, but belongs to another. So a covetous person is a person who is persistently discontent with what they have and are constantly looking over the fence saying, if I had that, I would be happy. Now, I want us to think about this. Coveting is not stealing. Coveting is not adultery. Coveting is not murder. In one sense, you can look at coveting and say, what's wrong with coveting? Who gets hurt, right? Doesn't hurt anybody. What's the big deal about coveting? Well, coveting is an inner compulsion, okay? It's something that happens on the inside of us in our souls, in our minds, in our hearts, in our wills and emotions. It's saying inside, in our hearts, this is what it's saying. I have to have that thing or I am nothing. It's an inner compulsion that kind of locks onto something your neighbor has, right? And it's, and all of a sudden, what happens? This trigger goes off and all of a sudden this wheel, this hamster wheel in our soul starts turning and all we can think about is whatever it is that we've locked on that we're saying, if I don't get that, I'm nothing. This is coveting. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, I'm going to give three reasons. I'm going to kind of build them out later in the sermon. One, coveting changes the way I relate to my possessions, okay? It kind of takes something that's created, car, house, whatever, and it kind of tries to fill that thing with transcendence, make it more than just a created thing, kind of makes it into a God, all right? So it changes the way that I view my possessions, and then because it's a created thing and it's not an actual God, when I'm chasing after that thing, what does it do? It makes me discontent. Like it just stirs my, gives me a kind of a turmoil of my soul, a, a disequilibrium in my soul that says you are not good, you are not okay, you cannot be happy until you get that thing, right? So it kind of makes me discontent. Secondly, it changes the way I view or relate to others. This kind of coveting destroys community. It's hard to really love someone and really be in a community with someone when you're like coveting what they have, right? When you're kind of grumbling under your breath, how did they get that? How can they afford that? How did they, well, you know what? I could too if I cheated. I know he cheats. I know he cheats on his taxes. I know he does, right? I know he's shady. I know he's doing shady business deals. We're like throwing shade on this guy, right? Like that's what we're doing. In our hearts, we're kind of, we're kind of bitter against him, right? Coveting destroys community, right? And if somebody gets something that we really wanted, oh, that's cool. Yeah, you know I've wanted that for like two years. That's cool. I'm real happy for you. Right? We know we're not. Third, coveting changes the way I view and relate to God. Coveting makes me feel distant from God. Now, this is why. I've already said kind of coveting kind of puts this transcendence into some created thing. Well, by definition, if I'm thinking something is transcendent other than God, then I'm going to kind of push away from him and begin to look for my meaning in life, my identity in life, my purpose in life from this created thing. So it's going to create this distance between me and God. And, and one of the things I find really um, intuitive and really, you know, kind of special about the Ten Commandments is if you go through the Ten Commandments, most of them or the majority of them are not really anything new, right? The other surrounding nations at the time, they said don't, don't murder, they said don't steal, they said these things. But the Ten Commandments does have the first commandment and the 10th commandment that make them special. Now, one of, one of the things is, and it's always kind of boggled my mind how Americans could ever say we want the 10 commandments in a courtroom. Like you realize the 10th commandment is there, right? Thou shalt not covet. Do we want somebody like, you know, from outside of us trying to legislate that? Like, are you coveting right now? I think you are. That's a year in jail. Like what? Like, every, you murder somebody, we can prove that. You steal something, we can probably prove that. You covet, that's between, honestly, you 
and God, right? But this is something special that the Ten Commandments that the God of the Bible gives us, and he's showing us, listen, the key to a good society, the key to a good community, the key to a happy life isn't just obeying and doing the right things. Don't murder, don't steal, don't, right? There's something in our desires that has to change. The first commandment tells us to worship God only, and the last commandment tells us not to overly desire things, not to desire something that's our neighbors. It's getting down underneath our our behavior, and it's getting down into our desires. And also, we have learned over the last nine weeks that every commandment has a, it's like a coin. It has a positive side and negative side. It's got one head or tails, right? It's got one side or the other. And this commandment that says, do not covet, God is also commanding his people here to be content. And contentment, I would argue, is what we all desire. It's what we all are longing for. This is what we're chasing. We're chasing an equilibrium in our soul where we're not overly desiring. Why can't I just enjoy what I have? Why can't I just be happy? My bet would be if I could interview you two years ago, if I could go back you two years ago and say, what are you wanting right now? What are you desiring? You might say, I'm wanting this promotion at work. You might say, you know what? I'm wanting this new car. It's time to get it. You know what? I'm, I'm really want whatever. And then now, if I talk to you now, you probably have got some of those things. And guess what? If I talk to you about what are you looking forward to? What are you longing for? You're like, you know, there's this promotion that's out there. You know, there's this kind of, this house I've been looking at. It's got a little bit more square footage. You know, it's got an open school, you know, open floor plan, right? It's got that Magnolia Homes feel to it. That's kind of what I'm going for right now, right? What's the, what's the point of that? That your two, year ago, your two years ago self said, if you got here today, you would be happy. And now yourself is here today and you're not happy. So please just stop trusting yourself, okay? <laughs> you're lying to yourself every day. It's happening. Now, what is contentment? Contentment for me, I'm just going to you know, describe it this way. Contentment is that moment after a great dinner. Not the one, right, when you're too stuffed to move, right? Not the one after the Papa John's dinner, right? Not that one. The one where you ate and drank just enough, right? And if you were offered anything else, you'd just turn it down because you feel full. You feel satisfied. Now, that's contentment of the belly. But God wants his people to have a contentment of the soul. And I'm... I'm arguing this morning that that's that's exactly what you're looking for. That's what you want in this life is to have your mind and your heart and your desires at equilibrium, content. We are all looking for contentment. We want a happiness and a satisfaction that's consistent. But what the 10th commandment does, I love it because you work all the way through the commandments and then you get to this last one and it kind of sends us back to the first in a sense. The 10th commandment kind of shows us by, check, by kind of making us be a little introspective and it brings us into our desires and it says that most of us are searching for contentment, are fighting for contentment, but we're looking in the wrong direction. I'm just going to say this and I hope maybe you've experienced this. It's so frustrating to look across the yard and lay our hearts upon some created thing like a new car and say, when I get that, I'll be content. And we work and we scheme. We may go into great debt to get it. And that first drive is like heaven on earth, right? This is why when you get into a new car, if you're just looking around, the salesman's always like, man, this car looks good on you. Yeah, you've earned this car. You know what? This car's got you, and you're like, you know what? I have earned this car. This car does look good on me. This new car, what does it do? That first drive, you drive that home, you don't park it in the garage. It's It's in the driveway. Why? This car tells the world I'm somebody special. This new car proves that I am successful. (laughs) yes, I am the type of person who can afford a car like this. But then, you know, I love it. 
you know what? I am. I do have this much swag. Absolutely. This car is a good representative, a representation of my soul. And then all of a sudden, here's what happens though. That next day you wake up 20 minutes early. You're going to take the long way to work. Just whoa, cruising, loving it. But about a month, maybe it's six months. And this vehicle kind of miraculously loses all of its transcendence. All of it. You get into this person's car and there's a water bottle on the floor. Just throw it in the back seat, it doesn't matter. Yeah, his gym shoes are in the back, then they're all weak. Right, that new car smell? No, not so much. This vehicle kind of transforms into just another car. And it's so depressing. It's so frustrating. Why can't it always feel like that first day? I'm still making the payment on it. Was that first feeling worth that the next five years? Right? Often it further transforms into this burden, this weight around your ankle that limits your freedom. And you discover once again that what promised you satisfaction and happiness turned out to be just another disappointment. See, coveting kills our contentment. And when we are discontent, we do all kinds of foolish things. I'm going to say when we're discontent, we break all the other commandments. You don't break a commandment until you're discontent with your life most of the time. And I also find this commandment to be deeply insightful because it gets down underneath the surface of our lives. It gets below our actions and it gets into our desires. Now listen, here's the the kind of flow that this, ha- that this, you know, this kind of coveting kind of takes in a person's life. First, we see some created thing and we think that thing will make me happy, okay? Could be a vacation, could be a house, could be a spouse, whatever. We see some created thing that'll make me happy, right? Now, there's several types of people in this room. There's the first type, you have not got that thing yet, and so you're not really believing me this morning because you know once you get doctor in front of your name, you will be happy, right? And so you're fighting for it, and then you get it, and it lasts for a moment, then the student bill, then the you know, student loan bills come, and you start wondering if this was the right decision, right? So there's those of you who haven't got the thing yet, and so you're searching and you're longing and you're hoping that thing's going to satisfy you, Okay? But then there's some of us in this room who have gotten it. And often we can be the most miserable because we said, when I get that thing, I'm going to be happy. And then we worked hard and we got it and we found it unsatisfying. Now this leaves us with basically two options. When you've achieved your goals and you've gotten something and you found it unsatisfying, it leaves you with basically two options. One, you either change direct, change your goals and go, okay, I thought it was the truck. Nope, it's actually the bass boat. That's what I really need, right? The bass boat, or I thought it was that girl. I guess it's not. It was somebody else. And we just shift from one created thing to the other created thing. Or some of us have done that enough through our life, right? We've chased contentment enough that way in our life that we have kind of given up in despair, We've kind of become cynical with the world. Nothing is good enough to satisfy me. What's the point? And it's interesting. And I'm going to say before I'm going to get to the end, I think there's another way to relate that God gives us through the gospel that I'm going to get to at the end. But I want to stick on this point here, this giving up and becoming cynical. God has given us this book in the Bible that's kind of all about kind of worshiping created things and becoming cynical. And it's the book of Ecclesiastes. And I'm going to preach through it coming up soon, maybe next year. That's our next Old Testament book. I've been chomping at it. So it's coming. Solomon was a man of faith. He was the son of David, King David, who got caught up. He was, so let's just say it in our terms, he was a Christian who got caught up in covetousness. And he walked away from God for a time to chase after literally everything his heart desired. Anything he wanted, he gave himself. Okay? And I'm just going to tell you right now, whatever you're looking for, Solomon had it times 10. Okay? He was 
arguably the richest man to ever walk the face of the earth. Okay, he was super uber wealthy. Okay, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Just do the math, right? That's like one for, he sees one every three years if, he, if he's seen one a day, right? He was incredibly wise and people from other nations came to see his wisdom, right? Came to see how he's ruling the country and how he's building these gardens. He was, architect, he was an architect. He could do all kinds of things. He had all these hobbies. He took everything to the, to the farthest extent you can t- possibly take it. And you know, what, you know what Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes? He tried it all. He tested it all. He tasted it all. He's like, this is it? It's all vanity, he says. Vanity, vanity, a chasing after the wind. He's chasing happiness through creation, and he just can never find it. In Ecclesiastes 5.11, he says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Right? We know that. How much money do you need? Just a little bit more. We're all there. Nor he who loves wealth with gain. This also is vanity. See, each accomplishment that Solomon had promised satisfaction, but satisfaction never came. And this makes the book of Ecclesiastes, I preached through it one time as a youth pastor, and I remember kids going like, Justin, stop it. Like, this is a downer. Like, all these teenagers who are like looking for college, and they're looking for boyfriends, and they're looking for this next thing, and they have nothing but ro- you know, rose-colored glasses looking at the world and going, I, my life is going to be so amazing, right? I'm pre-med, pre-law, but I'm probably going to go, you know, into nonprofit sector. Like, I'm, you know, I'm just going to be the change. I can't wait right? And you're looking at him and you're saying, see the Solomon dude? He had everything that you wanted and he was miserable. And they were like, Justin, stop it. This is negative. I don't like this. Solomon was becoming, he was, he was becoming cynical with his life. Over and over, he says, basically, this life is pointless. This life is meaningless. And then he does what many of us are afraid to do. See, he was raised, I'm going to say as a Christian, he was raised in the covenant, he was raised under God. But you know, that was kind of, oh, I just, you know, my dad taught me this. This is my dad's faith. This is my dad's religion. What does dad know? Right, this ancient God who chose him as a shepherd boy. I don't, that's not my faith. I'm going to go explore the world. I'm going to be an intellectual. I'm going to I'm going to get all that I can get, amass all I can amass. And he does this, and he realizes that he's gotten on this path, and he's found it unsatisfactory. It's not working, and he's miserable. And he, and he has more courage than many of us have, because what he does is he doesn't say, okay, one more thing. He finally kind of gives up and goes, you know what? There's one thing I haven't tried. I'm going to go back to the faith of my father, and I'm going to dig around in that faith, and I'm going to see if there's any resources there that can actually satisfy this soul of mine that is unsatisfiable. And that's exactly what Solomon does. And he finds, like many others have found, that the key to contentment is to be in a real and right relationship with God. And this is what Solomon says in, in chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. He says this, There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I say, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? You see what Solomon is saying there? He's saying, listen, everything you have is from God, right? You've used your gifts. I know you're talented in your education, all of that, but right, you weren't in your mother's womb, right, fighting for a good IQ, right? You weren't coming and saying, you know, I need a strong back, and I really want to have this engineer-type mentality, or I really want to be geared towards being a doctor. This was a gift from your mother. This was a gift from God. 
God has gotten you where you are. God has given you everything that he's, everything that you have is a gift from him. But Solomon's also saying something I think is profound. He's saying God gives two types of gifts. He gives the stuff and he gives this universally. Whether you're in a tribe in Africa or you're in Manhattan, he gives stuff. It's all from him. But the second thing he gives us, he gives the ability to enjoy those things. And it says here, he gives the ability to enjoy those things to the one that pleases him. He's saying, apart from God, who can have enjoyment? Now that's fascinating to me. I've seen this in my life. I think maybe you have too. Two people can have the exact same things. One can enjoy them and one not. One person can be satisfied and the other constantly dissatisfied. The problem is clearly not our circumstances. It's not our stuff. It's not the gifts themselves. We've all been given food and drink. We've been given work and rest, right? We've been given love and sex. We've all been given these things. Some of us can find satisfaction in our lives and some of us don't. Some of us can really enjoy these things and some of us don't. Now, why is that? As I said before, this is where the 10th commandment drives us back to the first commandment. The first commandment was unique in the ancient world because it was, it said that you could worship Yahweh only. We know you go back, every other nation of the world was polytheistic. They didn't care if you worship other gods, just worship, you know, you can work, you just worship a new God right alongside your old God. But the Jewish faith was the first one. These Hebrews were the first ones that said, God said, absolutely not. You can't worship anybody else. I'm the only true God. Worship me only. But Yahweh here, the God of the Bible, is the creator of all things. And he says he made us for himself. We were made to know him. We were made to enjoy him and love him with all our hearts. And that's exactly what it means to worship him. Worship him alone. We were, from the first commandment, if you remember, worship is the default mode of the human heart. Everyone worships something. You worship whatever fills your imagination most of the time. Whatever it is that your heart trusts in for security, for your identity, that thing is your God. It could be money, it could be success, it could be a spouse, it can be anything in all of creation. But God says nothing in creation can satisfy your heart's desires. Solomon goes on to say, God has placed eternity in the human heart. That means we desire and crave something eternal, something everlasting. And that is a real and right relationship with God. Manhattan pastor Tim Keller says this, the first commandment and the 10th commandment are like bookends. And they summarize the whole. The first commandment was love God with all your heart, put nothing before him, be totally absorbed in him. The 10th commandment is the result. So let me just say this. If you worship God alone, if you have a real and right relationship with God and you're, you, you feel this connection with God, right? You have this real relationship. You will not covet anything in creation. How could you? You're fully satisfied in the creator of all things. How could I say that thing will make you know, make me a better person. That thing over there will somehow fulfill me. You have the meaning of life. How could you need anything else? Now, listen, I don't think, I don't just think it's bookends. I think there's something else in here that's meant to help us be, like I said before, be pushed back to this first commandment. It's kind of a sign that, that points, that says there's something going on in your soul that's off. You need to go back and look at the first commandment again. Now listen, that means when I find myself coveting another person's house, wife, business, or any of their other possessions, it's a sign to me that I'm worshiping in that moment, I'm worshiping something other than God. Now I could walk up to you and go, what are you worshiping? You go, Jesus Christ. Or I can walk up to you and go, what are you worshiping? You're like, I'm an agnostic. I don't worship anything. You can say, it doesn't matter what you say with your mouth. Your heart determines what are you filling with transcendence? What are you looking at and saying, if I get that, then I'll be somebody. That's worship. 
You're worshiping whatever that thing is your heart is locking onto. It might be your job. It might be the promotion. It might be your spouse. It might be your kids. That's what you really worship. And your coveting heart is like a, a siren going off saying, you've put your faith in some created thing instead of God, your creator. Now I hear this this morning. This happens to all of us. Believer or unbeliever, the 10th commandment is the gas gauge of your spiritual life. When you covet, it is your heart's warning lights going on. It's your soul telling you you're hungry for God. You're dissatisfied with God. You need more of your creator. You are on the crazy train once again. You are caught up in that cycle of craving and grasping after some created thing in the hopes that it's finally going to make you content. And this is why it's so hard for people to really find contentment. Everyone worships all the time. Everyone serves something they see as the ultimate meaning of their life. And every single thing other than God will fail you. Success will fail you. Eventually, you will be forgotten. Business will fail you. Eventually, you will quit or you will be fired or you will die. It's coming for all of us. Beauty will fail you. You'll wake up one day with lines across your face, with age spots. You will buy all the product that all the stay-at-home moms offer you. <laughs> You'll put it on every inch of your body and it still won't work. Beauty will eventually fail you. Or just as bad, you will fail them. What happens when you fail them? What happens when you worship money and you fail it? I've never once seen someone make a bad financial decision and money give them grace. Oh, no big deal. Hold on. Let's do a redo on that. Take your money out, put it back in somewhere else, right? Money is unforgiving. You spend it, it's gone. You use it unwisely, it's gone. It's cruel. <laughs> Beauty literally vanishes into the night, right? And it's, you can never get it back. But God, when you put your faith in God and when you put your trust in Jesus, when you fail him, he forgives you. When you sin against him, Jesus is there pleading your case to the Father. Jesus lived the perfect life that we don't live and he died the death that we all deserve for our coveting in our hearts. And Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father and he says, look at me, don't look at them. I lived the life for them. I died their death for them. They're put, they put their faith in me, so look at me. See, every other God, when you fail it, it leaves you. Jesus saved you when you were a failure. He looked down and he said, they're not good at life, breaking all kinds of commandments, but I'm going to come down there and rescue them and save them. Jesus is a lot better than any other God. He doesn't kick us out of the church. He reaches down and gives us grace. Now, listen, I've talked to so many Christians in my missional community, throughout the ministry, who've embraced the faith, and then for some reason, they get shocked when they still covet on a fairly regular basis. They're like, I, I'm, I'm a Christian, but that house, that house, that car, that job. And they oftentimes, what do they do? They result to what we call religion and they start beating themselves up over it. Stop it, stop it. They start putting pressure on their soul. Quit doing that. What is wrong with me? Why am I still not content? But let me just ask you, is that what you think when your gas light comes on in your car? Maybe I just have a different relationship with my vehicle since I've had a Ford F-150 for the past like three vehicles. I just always buy a Ford. So gas is just like, well, it's Tuesday again. <laughs> but when my gas light comes on, I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? 
I put gas in you last month. What are you doing? What's wrong with this thing? Why is this light coming on? No, it needs to be refilled. It uses it throughout the week, right? It needs, it's hungry again. It needs to be fed again. The same is true with our soul. Becoming a Christian happens in a moment, but living as a Christian is a lifetime of learning to become, listen, more and more dependent upon God and more and more content in God. And God wants us to go to him and be reminded that we're not self, we can't satisfy ourselves. We're not autonomous. We need, in a sense, to go to the gas station and get filled up. And that's God himself in a depersonalized kind of way. We're meant to have this kind of flaw in our humanity that hungers and thirsts. And when I start coveting, it's a sign, go back to God. You need more of God. You need to be reminded of who you are in him and what he's done for you. I shouldn't beat myself up when the gaslight comes on. I should go back to God to be filled. Every time we covet, it's our heart telling us, you're running on fumes. You need more of God. It's a temptation, obviously, to worship something other than God, but it's also a red light flashing, letting us know that our heart is craving something other than God to make us happy. It's just like God whispering to our ears, you are hungry for me. But far too often, we ignore the light. And we give ourselves over to our coveting hearts and we begin to put our hopes in some created thing to make us happy. Now listen, I'm speaking to Christians. I'm speaking to Christians. Hey, I'm speaking to myself. I'm your pastor and I can see my covetous heart. What should this do? This should humble us. Christians that don't understand this and Christians that don't understand the gospel somehow walk around with a smug swagger thinking they're better than others, thinking they understand the world better than, think they're, they're more moral and God's more pleased with them than he, are, he is with others. We need to see that we are guilty of breaking the commandments. We are guilty of possessing in ourselves covetous hearts that would rather have a promotion than have intimacy with God. This led Martin Luther to say this of this commandment. This last commandment, therefore, is not given for rogues in the eyes of the world, but just for the most pious who wish to be praised and called honest and upright people since they have not offended against the former commandments, right? I never killed anybody. I can't remember. Someone once told me in a missional community setting, I haven't lied in seven years. And I was like, should we count that one right there? I was shocked when they said it. I was waiting for the husband to go, raise, a, you know, raise the flag and go, that ain't true. He didn't. He was probably, never mind, I almost said that. <laughs> Woo! All right. See, listen, we all could, some of us in this room could go through the Ten Commandments in kind of a surface level way and say, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I don't murder, I don't cheat on my spouse, I honor my parents, I try my best not to lie or steal. But then we get to this commandment, thou shalt not covet. And we want to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm an American. Right? Like I, marketing and commercials, like we invented those things. And it's all about tapping into this covetous nature of the human heart and getting them to buy stuff they don't really want. Right? Convince them that they need it. It's going to find, they're going to find satisfaction. They buy it. They know they're not. We get this commandment here. Thou shalt not covet. And this commandment is meant to humble us all in the dust before the God of the universe. In fact, it was surprisingly this commandment that converted one of the most well-known antagonists to the Christian faith Saul of Tarsus. If you know anything about Saul of Tarsus, he was a strictly 
pious and religious Jew, and he saw this rising sect called Christianity, this Jesus, this new teacher. He saw him as a false teacher. And after Jesus was gone, he was dead and resurrected, and his disciples, instead of abandoning the faith like every other false teacher that came up, every other sect leader that came up in the Jewish faith, when they killed that sect leader, everybody disbanded. Well, this one was different, namely because the resurrected Jesus showed up to over 500 people, including his own brother, and convinced his brother that he was the son of God post-mortem. And so all of this is going on. Saul doesn't believe any of it. Saul hasn't seen the resurrected Jesus. Saul's going to kill and persecute other Christians. He's going to snuff out. He's got legal orders to snuff out this new sect of Christianity. And as he's going, he even participates in the, the first martyr, Stephen's death. He's standing there holding the cloaks of the men who stoned Stephen, for to, stoned Stephen to death for preaching the gospel and saying they killed the Son of God. Saul was an antagonist of the Christian faith, and he's on his way to persecute more Christians, and the resurrected Jesus knocks him off of his horse and says, stop it. And he says, stop what? Who are you? I'm Jesus. And then that's the probably the greatest oh crap moment, <laughs> right? I'm on the wrong team. That's literally in the moment, I'm on the wrong team. And I love it because when Jesus shows up to a person like that, he doesn't even go, listen, come to me. It's your best life now. He looks down and Saul goes, I'm going to tell you how much you're going to suffer for me. He converts him. He chooses him. He picks the best player off of one team and he says, no, you're mine now. And Saul, as this is happening to him, Saul, as he's kind of thinking about it and he's commenting on it in the book of Romans, he says, it was this commandment, the commandment not to covet, that proved to him he actually needed Jesus. He actually needed a savior. Because up until this moment, he looked at the law and he's like, I'm killing it. I am an upright Jewish man. And then when he got in the Ten Commandments and he got to the Tenth Commandment, this law not to covet, he realized, ooh, I'm coveting all the time. I'm wanting to be somebody great. This is why he was highly, he was a high, he was a high level intellectual, educated in the best schools under the best teachers. And he gets converted in this moment and he realizes he's a coveter that he was never content in his religion and he needed the Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's so interesting to me, if you study the life of Paul, that Paul, though he was kind of converted under this 10th this commandment not to covet, Saul learned the secret that we all need to learn. He learned the secret to being content. Some years after his conversion, he said this from prison. It's, quote, it's from Philippians. He said, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Hear that? He's like, no, no, no. I can be content with nothing, and I can be content with a lot. He's not saying it's so much better if you have nothing, this kind of vow of poverty thing. No, he says, I can be content no matter what status I have in my life right now. He says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. Look, I have learned the secret of being content in every, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. Now that's something. whether living in plenty or in want. And of course, Paul is writing this, or Saul is writing this from a jail cell. He's in prison. And he's like, I'm content. Learn the secret. Now, what's the secret? This is interesting to me. This Bible verse is not for your coffee cup in the morning, okay? Most of us know this verse because Tim Tebow taught us this verse. This is not about scoring touchdowns. Right? Actually, Tim Tebow needed this verse when Alabama beat them. That's when he needed this verse. Okay? He needed to learn to be content in winning and losing. And what is the true key? What is the secret to contentment? I can do all things through him who strengthens me through Jesus Christ. That verse is about being content. That verse is not about hitting home runs and scoring touchdowns. It's about finding contentment in our lives that Jesus Christ can help us. He is the secret to being content. 
Paul had learned this secret. That contentment is not circumstantial. It does not depend on our situation in life. And this is interesting to me. We're going to go to 1 Timothy as I close. 1 Timothy, because le- years later, at the end of his life, Paul, and Paul Saul, Saul Paul, okay, same guy. He's writing to his young protege, Timothy, in the faith, right? He's writing to his young protege. He's telling him how to carry on the faith, telling him how to be a good elder and be a good pastor and be a good church planner. And this is one of the things that he teaches him in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Now, let me just say, there's some people, even in this day and age, in the Bible's day and age, and in our day and age, that teach you, if you come to Christ, if you put your faith in Christ, it's a means of gain for you. He will make your life easier. You'll never, you know, he'll pay all your bills. You won't struggle anymore. You can even get rich. God will buy you some fancy car, maybe even a jet if you ask him for it, okay? They see godliness as a means to gain, financial gain. This is what Saul says about that. In verse 6, chapter 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world, right? No matter how hard we work, no, I don't, it doesn't matter if you die with a $100 bill in your hand, That's not going with you. You're leaving it for somebody. Possibly the first person to find you. It's a shame. Better call 911. (laughs) Keep reading. But if we have food and clothing, with with these things we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich. Now, pause here. I hate this statistic, but like every one of us in this room, more than likely, or the majority of us in the world standard, we're rich. Now, none of us are rich in our own minds because our neighbor has more, our boss has more, somebody else has more. Statistically, we're all rich. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, this covetousness, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I'm going to go ahead and keep reading. But as for you, O man or O woman of God, Flee these things, flee covetousness, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Look, what's the answer? Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the, many presence, in the presence of many witnesses. What's Paul saying here? He's saying fight to believe what is already true. Fight to believe that God has given you and God is everything that you need. That's what, that's what Paul's doing. Whether he's fighting from a prison cell, he's not there laying like, you know what? No, I don't need a blanket. I don't need anything. In fact, later on in one of his letters, he's like, hey man, when you come to see me, bring my letters and bring my cloak. Why? He's freezing. He's in a jail cell. He's shivering and he's shaking, but he's content But at the same time, hey man, bring that coat, bring that coat. It's not a theology of suffering. I'm over here freezing for Jesus. It's like, no, bring bring the coat, but I'm content without it or with it. Right? Then Peter, one of the closest apostles to Jesus. This is what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3. God's power, his divine power, has granted to believers, us, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Another way of saying that is, God has already given me everything I need for life and godliness and contentment. Think about that. If you are already a Christian, you have all the resources you need. They've been given to you in Christ. You might not be drawing upon them, but they're in the bank account. They're there for you. When I, I was, It was kind of a, kind of a leading 
point I was making earlier when I was telling you, you need more of God, you need more of God, you need more of God. Many of us feel like that. Yeah, I need more of God, I need more of God. Actually, that's not quite accurate. You have all of God that you want and all of God that you need. Everything for life and godliness has been given to you. You might not be fighting to believe that. You might not be preaching the gospel to yourself and reminding yourself of that. You might not be going to the bank and withdrawing some of those resources because you're chasing after another God. We have everything we need in Christ. Problem is when we lose sight of that truth, we forget how loved we are. We have gospel amnesia. So many of us are hungry for God. We are spiritually empty. And when the gas gauge flashes and we start coveting, we don't recognize it as spiritual emptiness. And we give ourselves over to our coveting, thinking if I get that thing, if I get that person, I'll finally be happy. It's the addictive cycle. Can I ask you this morning as I'm closing, what are you craving right now? What created thing is filling your imagination and telling you that if you could get it, you would be happy? I pray that God would give you eyes to see that lie. He'd give you eyes to see the false promise that that created thing is offering you and you would see him as all sufficient, willingly giving you more and more and more of himself as you draw upon him, as you draw near to him, just overflowing, willingly, giving you more and more and more and more. The more you realize you're dependent upon him, the more you're drawing down his resources into your life. Christians, as we come to this table this morning, really that's exactly what's going on. We're coming with empty hands and an empty belly. We're bringing nothing to him but our sins and our needs. And God is here meeting our needs. God is filling our bellies and God is filling our souls, reminding us that he has already met all of our spiritual needs in Christ. And if he's met our greatest needs, our spiritual needs that deal with eternity, won't he meet our physical needs? We come to the table this morning, let us eat and be satisfied. For those of you who have not Put your faith in Christ. Don't take the elements this morning. Take Christ. See, it doesn't matter what you say you believe. You're putting your faith in some created thing right now. It might be the buffet down the street. When I get there, I'll be happy. When I get out of this sermon, I'll be happy. Don't make me start over. You're putting your faith in that thing. I'm going to say, Jesus is better. Put your faith in him this morning. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your graciousness. I thank you that you are the only God who gives grace. And I pray that we would dig down into this faith. We would dig down into this gospel and we'd find the resources that we need for our discontented souls. And as that warning light goes on in our life, we would be pushed back to you and we would drink of you and eat of you and taste and see that the Lord is good that you would teach us like you did Paul, Saul. You would teach us how to learn the secret of being content. And we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength, that Jesus has met all of our deep needs. And now, out of that abundance, we can be generous people, we can be kind and gentle people, we can love one another, be excited when our friends and brothers get prom- and sisters get promotions and get new things. We can be excited for them because our identity is not in them. We're not clinging and grasping for them. You're a good, gracious God. We worship you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.